welcome to episode 40 of Engagement Express podcast, the podcast series for HR engagement and internal communication professionals. My name's Kate Asiche, and today I'm joined by an amazing guest. Her name is Kelly Beaver, and she's the Chief Executive of Ipsos Mori. She's been with the organisation for over a decade and was previously Managing Director of Ipsos Mori's Public Affairs Division. Now, Kelly has led a wide range of notable research programmes, including the REACT study tracking COVID-19 prevalence across England and public attitudes to Brexit and vaccines through to a key piece of work with the Royal Foundation on the importance of the early years. I interviewed Kelly for the Simply Summit Internal Communications Conference back in November and found our conversation so engaging and Kelly so interesting that I invited her to participate on my podcast and I was very lucky that she said yes. So welcome, Kelly. So I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by Kelly Beaver, CEO of Ipsos Mori. Thank you so much, Kelly, for taking the time to be part of my podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Now, Ipsos Mori, an absolute giant behemoth when it comes to research and insights to public opinion and sentiment. How do you go about sort of moving an organization of that size? and with that level of reputation, forward? So, yes, we are one of the largest and oldest research and advisory firms in the UK. We started back in 1966, back when the main survey mechanism of the day was a postal survey asking people to fill out what they thought about their local councils, etc. We're now actually part of a 90-country organisation, which is the Ipsos Group, which is one of the largest globally. And we do everything today from postal, which is still a very used technique to gather public opinion, but right through to neuroscience, measuring digital behaviour in people's homes, all all sorts. We effectively measure public attitudes, public behaviours, and provide insights to our clients. So It's a real mix, actually, of technology working alongside people to make sure real-time insights get delivered to both our clients on the public and private sector side. That's amazing. And, you know, when people think about Ipsos Mori, they automatically think survey. You know, they think about data, they think about research. More than that. Yeah, Yeah, well. They think political polling. That's what we're known for. (laughs) Very true. um, Electoral polling. That is true. That is very true. And perhaps maybe I'm a bit further ahead of the game than, you know, older people who of a specific generation, perhaps baby boomers, who do remember Ipsos Mori for being just that, you know, gauging um, voter sentiment and, you know, trying to predict what the, the polls will come back with after general elections and such like. And, you know, you spoke about it being a sort of a heritage organization from 1966 that has got such an established history. Is that challenging, sort of changing the public opinion about what Ipsos Mori does and shifting people to thinking more about the work that you're doing now in that space around insights to public behavior and neuroscience? Yeah, so in the UK in 1966, it was called Market and Opinion Research International, which is Mori. 
And that's a household recognition brand. You know, you knock on a door and people will know that you're from Maury and you do the political polling, but actually we do an awful lot more. And Ipsos bought Maury around 15 years ago here in the UK and we became Ipsos Maury. But that brand is synonymous with certain things that are still incredibly useful for us as a business, like quality. It stands for quality in understanding public opinion. So actually, whilst the heritage is incredibly strong for a particular type of methodology, approach, and the history of our business and where we came from, the values and the principles that it stands for still matter hugely to our clients and to our people. And it is a bit of a license to operate in the world of measuring and understanding public consumers as citizens, public as citizens and consumers. And so actually those values stand and are incredibly helpful. Yeah, right. I totally get you. Um, When we talk about data and insights from an internal perspective, this podcast is all about engagement. When we spoke at Simply Summit, I asked you about the annual engagement survey and everyone always sort of, there is a bit of a negative, I guess, perception around the annual engagement survey. And that's just because there's so much weight of expectation placed on it as a mechanism for garnering opinions and sentiment and temperatures and all of those wonderful things that lead to the insights to understand how engaged employees actually are. What are your thoughts on that mechanism for reaching out to employees? And do you feel that it still has a place in organizations today? It's a really good question, and it is something that lots of our clients grapple with, understanding how best to understand how their staff are feeling, get to understand the pulse of the organization and identify where they need to make changes, either in their more significant policies or ways of operating, but also in more nimble things, how to react day to day to emerging circumstances that impact on people. I think they do still have a place. It's an important milestone each year really to get that understanding of how your staff base feel comparatively to the preceding year but not in isolation and I think one of the things that we do encourage is making sure that organizations have a wider variety of touch points throughout the year with their staff feedback mechanisms which are smaller scale and I've seen everything from people who pulse their staff every single day in smaller organizations where they literally ask them how are you feeling how are you feeling about working here What's annoying you most today? And that that kind of thing can be incredibly useful, but it also creates a high level of expectation around what you will do as a leadership and management team. So getting the balance right between every day and the once a year is something that organizations should be striving to achieve. Putting in place some of those feedback mechanisms for particular groups within the organization. So we have a number for, you know, parents for people from minority ethnic backgrounds, from our staff who are European, given that we've went through Brexit recently, but particular particular parts of our workforce where they will have views, opinions, additional barriers, and where we want to hear from them, them specifically more frequently. And so just thinking about a variety of mechanisms that you can put in place so that you're not waiting on that single survey point each year but that it still provides useful, perhaps more detailed insight than you make, more rounded insight than you may get through little ad hoc pieces throughout the year. Right. And I agree with you. You know, I love the idea of touching base frequently, but not putting too much pressure on employees. So I have worked for organizations where there have been daily touch points where they've said, you know, how are you feeling today? Is there anything that's impacted you negatively today? And sometimes it does feel a bit too much, but because it's so quick and it's so easy to complete. 
or to feed back, then it doesn't feel so, you know, such an onerous task, perhaps, as an employee engagement survey can be. And often, you know, when we do the annual engagement survey, you know, I sort of say, how long is it when I'm communicating it? I like to talk about the length and how long people expect to take or to dedicate Mm -hmm. to complete the survey. And I'm always surprised at how long it actually is. You know, people will say, oh, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And that's quite a sort of a commitment, I think, to ask someone to take 20 minutes out of their day to complete the survey, albeit good stuff. And you're asking for their feedback. Yeah. yeah, it is. And I think if it's an all or nothing game for organisations and they're literally waiting on that piece, it can end up being quite substantive and you're trying right. to cover the basis. And I think what's really important, if you're asking staff to give, as you say, 15 or 20 minutes to provide feedback, that you provide them with very concrete action plans and feedback on what you have done as a result of the, the information they've provided you in that survey. And so that follow-up period, that follow-up piece is really important, not just after the event of the survey, but before you go into the next year's cycle and you're able to go back and say, look, it's really important you help provide this feedback. Look what we have changed as a result of the feedback you provided last year and the time that you gave and the commitment that you made to telling us how you feel we're doing as an employer. So I think that feedback loop is something that can be done really well and have a very positive impact on both how staff feel you're engaging with them as an employer, but also how the culture in your organization evolves over time. Yeah. You know, there's always this vacuum whenever we do a survey and there's not many companies that are good at it. You know, they get the survey done and then suddenly there's this massive gap where no one says anything. And they might talk about the survey results, how many people responded, the high level sentiment they've got back, for example, the top two or three items that they want to address and which were the highest scoring items too. But then beyond that, no one really says anything. And I'm always really frustrated at that because, as you say, it's the feedback loop that's important and communicating, you know, what's going to be done with that information that you've gathered and also the action planning process. You know, typically no one wants to own that. And it can be a challenge, can't it? Well, this is a really good topic for this conversation because the ownership of the actions, they do not sit with HR. They do not sit just with the senior leadership team. Yes, the senior leadership team has an accountability to deliver against those actions, but motivating and encouraging staff. So as I mentioned, the groups that we have facilitated across our organization work with us to make sure that we implement the actions from the action plan as well. So if we have particular particular issues with items like the ethnicity pay gap that comes through in the staff survey or issues around work-life balance, we want to work with the staff base to make the improvements. And the improvements cannot just come from an HR policy or a chief executive laying down a particular mandate about a change. And so the engagement and who is delivering against the action plan and it not being a them and an us, you know, the the workforce versus the team is something that organizations do really struggle to crack. Yeah. And I've seen companies do it very well, actually. A few have, you know, sort of made it very clear that this is not a HR initiative. It's not a HR project. It's a company wide challenge and a project, really ongoing project and commitment to get the survey completed, to work on the action planning and to make sure that that's followed through from end to end. And there's constant communication, but it can be, you know, as an internal communicator, I do find it always a challenge to get that information. The action plan is one thing, but uh, what happened as a result of the action planning was, was anything actually done? And then you sort of, what you end up doing is shoehorning 
various initiatives that weren't actually part of the action planning to make people believe that something was done with the data that they received. So it is um, an interesting one, always very challenging. And I've said to you before, I love a good survey. I am (laughs) a major fan of surveys and I could spend hours understanding how they're done. I've seen some beautiful surveys and perhaps may well be that Ipsos Mori was behind them. What's the trick, would you say, to doing a good survey that is going to provide you with the data that you need and not lead people astray in terms of, you know, getting them to answer in a particular way? Sure. So there are groups of people in our organisation whose job it is to ensure that surveys are purpose. And by that, I mean, they are not biased. They are not Mm -hmm. leading. The questions are balanced but also that they will be cognitively understood by the people who are responding to them, irrespective of the background that they're coming from. So all of that needs looked at, and very easily you can end up with some leading questions, which Mm -hmm. make assumptions about the tone of the responses, or the options, the answer options that you're providing to people can be particularly one-sided. And so having people with survey and survey design expertise review the questions is often a helpful thing for organizations to do if they don't if they're not ex- engaging in an external provider if you're an ex- engaging with an external provider that's the kind of service you would be looking for them to deliver the other piece of course is to use questions which have been tried and tested before so right. you know we've already been through that kind of process to make sure that they're not biased that they're neutral they're balanced and that they can be easily understood and the options are covering there's a range of options that people might consider and also always given the sort of uh, don't know, not applicable type responses where that's appropriate too. So it is a science. It shouldn't be dabbled in. I think it is a right. science. You can see some very badly done surveys. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree with you. You're right. It is a science, 100%, because I have tried to dabble and it does not work. And it can be horrible you know, when you get the results back and you think, oh, my goodness, what have I done? I've sort of approached this in completely the wrong way. So it's amazing, you know, how difficult it is to actually create a good survey. And what you mentioned just now about language, that is so pivotal, so important. Mm-hmm. And as a communicator, I've learned over the years, there is a standard that says that you should go no higher than high school level of language. So that would be something like 14, 15 years of age. If a 14 or 15 year old can understand it, that's exactly the right level that you should be at. Would that? Would you go along with that? Or is there something more to it? Than no, that? I think it's a very good rule of thumb. And yeah. you have to bear in mind that people will be coming to your surveys from a, a range of different disciplines, experience, you know, linguistic skills, etc. And so you have to make sure that it is easily understandable. And the, the point of cognitive testing, which is something that we do with particularly complex or high profile surveys, is that you conduct a small number of interviews with people rather than, so if you're putting out your survey online, you conduct a small number of interviews with people using the survey script on telephone or face-to-face and you use it as an opportunity to explore what they understand by the language when they read it. For example, if you asked a question about culture, how do you feel about the culture in this organisation? What does that mean for a person in the graphic design studio versus the person working perhaps in one of the service delivery units in the business, etc.? And People will understand the word culture. It's quite a nebulous concept. What does it mean? It's the way we are together, the way we work together and how we are with each other. Those kind of 
concepts need broken down and you need to find out what people understand by it and how you can explain it in more simplistic language within your survey so that you get a fair comparative response. Right. Very true. And, you know, when we talk about getting information from employees or just getting information full stop, there are other mechanisms to do that beyond surveys. And I'm a great believer in getting information in ad hoc ways that are perhaps a bit more fluid and informal. So, you know, when we think about employee experience, we think about all the touch points that there are with employees and the employer and how you can get, you can garner information during those touch points. And that's where the value is for me. An employee experience that, you know, everyone understands now to be quite important. Everyone knows it to be pivotal to how well organizations function and how successful they are. And the purchase of uh, Carrying and Box recently, you've moved into this space. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yes, certainly. So Ipsos has been conducting employee research for a reasonable period of time, but our capacity for it and the volume of experts in our business was not as high as we would have liked. And we do think it's an important area. We research people as citizens, we research them as consumers, and we want to research them as employees as well and support our clients with that kind of capability. Carrying in a box is an industry leading firm with a very strong brand and a very strong capability. They're innovative, they're ahead of their game, their outputs are high quality. And we were really excited in talking to them because their culture is very similar to ours as well. And that matters when you're looking to acquire businesses and capabilities. And working alongside their senior team, you can really see that there's a very good cultural fit between the two organizations and alignment. So we're delighted and it's all going very well so far with the integration. Yeah, there does seem like a great synergy between the two parties. I think it's a, you know, a great partnership and employee experience is so pivotal uh, to so many organizations. And I, I was looking at the clients that they've got very, very high level, you know, large organizations. So I, you know, I'm sure they have great insights to how employee experience can be harnessed to benefit organizations. So I know that you've recently come on board as CEO of Ipsos Mori. How does that feel? Is that something that you were working towards for some time? Was it a surprise or I guess it wasn't a surprise? (laughs) Um, uh, Good question. Before I did this role, I was managing director for the public sector part of the Ipsos Mori business, which is one of the most the most significant the largest part of the business when we look at it across the different sectors and industries and so and I, I loved that job but when this job became available the idea of being able to look after the Ipsos Mori brand and the full business including the private sector part of the business as well it was just too good an opp- opportunity and they don't come up very often at that sort of level and scale and it was too good an opportunity not to have a go. And so I did put my hat in the ring for it. It was quite a process, but I was very pleased with the outcome. Yeah, I'm sure you were. And I think they've made a great choice. And I, you know, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Do you have a viewpoint on being a female in such a senior role? Or do you feel that we're beyond that now? Because I had a, a sort of a question in my mind, should I ask her it or not? It didn't really occur to me. But then I thought to myself, well, actually, there aren't that many female CEOs. Do you have a view on that? It's week three, so it's difficult. To, <laughs> it's difficult to comment. I think it is really positive that there are more people 
who look different at the top of organizations. Right. So I am not another white male from Oxbridge, which right. is a long tradition in the market research industry. And I think that is positive to have a bit of diversity because it shows others that they too can strive to do roles like this. Right. There are definitely challenges for females doing very senior, very demanding roles because the burden at home, irrespective of how wonderful your partner is and mine is wonderful, there are still mental and emotional burdens that will fall higher on the female than the male. There are many academic studies that prove that. And so balancing in a senior role like this is I think, going to be a challenge for the foreseeable future for women who do this kind of job. And you can outsource to the cows come home and you can, you know, build in childcare support and cleaning support to help you manage your household, etc. But at the end of the day, the deck of cards falls very fast. At the minute, certainly with the pandemic, if you have a coughing child, as I discovered last week, you cannot pay anybody to look after your coughing child. right. (laughs) <laughs> so, right, um, exactly. so in short I think it's good that there are more women coming through to do this kind of role I feel very proud and privileged to be doing it but the dilemmas and challenges are very much still there yeah and I have read a lot of research that states that women have been negatively more negatively affected by the pandemic than men and that's just because as you say the burden of care falls firmly in their lap and I'm sandwiched in between children and elderly parents. So um, I know <laughs> I know Ooh, exactly yeah, what that feels tough. like. Yeah, it's, it's tough. But as you say, things are changing and things will get better as time goes on. But yeah, it's a slow process. I mean, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> I wish I could, but I know you don't have <laughs> the bandwidth to be jabbering on to me for all that time. But I've really appreciated your insights. Such an intelligent and insightful interview as always. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today, Kelly. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me and best of luck with your podcast.